So we get started here. Um, when I when I read or listen to or talk to those that are struggling with uh, uh, our early history of the church and they're having some kind of faith crisis you start going down the list of things that that they struggle with and always uh, the different versions of the first vision the different vision versions <laughs> trying to verify the, vi the vision versions uh, are one of those questions al along with uh, Joseph Smith's polygamy and the book of Abraham and they're just kind of this the, the usual suspects well this is one of the usual suspects uh, so now I'm also aware that probably the vast majority of those of you who are here say well I believe it happened I don't have a problem Problem with it, I'm good. Uh, but I promise you, you're going to be talking to, be around, teach, uh, involve, have questions, grandkids, whatever, who are going to have questions. So being able to have an answer and be able to understand fully uh, what we're what we're coming up with is is critical. And if you go back and I don't know how many of you had a chance to look at the church essay, if you're following the citations and the essays, it just goes on and on and on. The church is just working over time to provide transparency on this. Yeah. Uh-huh. I looked for those. I'm not computer savvy. I don't know where to find them. Where the essays? You have to put if you if you go to LDS.org and you put in doctrinal essays yeah. in the search engine, you, you should come across it. Doctrinal Yeah, because it's not it's that the essays aren't necessarily on the first pull down yeah. thing. They, they are there, but you've got to be able to know that that's what you're looking for. Are they Doctrinal essays. I mean, yeah, I know, but is there a list of doctrinal essays? Uh, there is. Once you get to that page, you'll see a whole long list of uh, things about mother in heaven and uh, polygamy and women in the priesthood and all of those. I put an essay in that little white. Book. Yeah, essays. I put an essay, and then t several things came up, and there was one that said essay topics. I, essay topics. I clicked on that, and went, this was the first thing it went. To. Oh, okay, good. All right. Well, that said, uh, so let me a let, let me answer the, uh, the 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 burning question that you all have about that. Uh, uh, there we are. Okay. Now, kind of interesting, and, and uh, okay, this is speculation, okay? But here's what we found in, in recent years. R researchers have found that after the War of 1812, the, the country had a naval base on the end of er the, uh, Lake Erie. And because they had a naval base there, they had a man that was very dutifully uh, keeping track of the weather. And because that, that station is not that far from Palmyra, we have a day-by-day -day account of the weather in Palmyra in 1820. How about that? Okay. Now, if you put a few clues together, there, there's two things that you need to, to know. First of all, what was the weather on the morning of the first vision? It was a beautiful, clear spring day early in the spring of 1820, right? So we know it's clear. We know it's a beautiful day. Um, that narrows it down. So two, in, two researchers that I was looking at independent of each other arrived at the same day. Um, and so you eliminate the cloudy days, the snowy days, the, stuff like that. So that's that's first clue you're looking for. Here comes the second piece. Um, 
the the big cash crop for the the Smiths was uh, maple syrup. Now, in having to study about how maple syrup uh, works and, and talking a little bit to, to people when we were just up in uh, uh, Boston and Halifax and stuff where, where they do a lot of maple syrup production, there's some things that I've come to find out. And some of you guys that maybe have a horticultural background could tell me better than I can. But apparently what happens is because maple syrup is essentially the sap running in and up and down inside the maple tree, uh, it flows up and down based on uh, cold nights and warmer days. So it's the movement of the sap and then you tap in, you can catch that sap as it's moving and then and take it out and then you're going to process it after that. Okay. Now, in order to do that though, the, the sap, so the prime time for the Smiths in Palmyra, maple syrup production is really kind of about the first of March to about the middle of April. And that's prime time. So there, during that time, if you're running, uh, if you're doing maple syrup, and the Smiths were very busy with maple syrup production, March through the middle of April is prime time, and they're out there daily trying to capture it and, and get it stuff like that. Okay. Uh, now. That means that if they're busy running maple syrup production, it's hard to take time to go pray in the woods. Because other people are also going to be out there and you're not going to get the privacy that you're looking for. Okay? So now, what you're looking for then is uh, the, the two big pieces are a beautiful clear day early in the spring and you're looking for a time when they wouldn't the, the temperature has to consistently be above about 40 degrees for about three days in a row because the maple production stops at that moment because you're waiting for colder days to cause the sap to move again so you're looking for three days above 40 and a clear day uh, according to the weather things that happened twice uh, one is one is late in May which is kind of just late in May, may not necessarily work. But there are three days in late March, the 24th, the 25th, and the 26th. The sap is still running the 24th and the 26th, but by the 20, by our 24th and 25th, by the 26th, it's a Sunday, it's a beautiful clear day, and the sap stopped running. Because it's the third day in a row the temperature's been above 40. So, the speculation coming from at least two independent research, we're never going to know for sure, but just kind of one of those fun little trivia things is that there's an excellent chance that the day that we're looking for is March 26th, 1820. How about that? Um, does that change anything? Not really, but it's just kind of one of those little fun facts. Okay, now. Now let me let me uh, let me now address a, a, a little tougher issue here uh, when we before we actually take a look at the content of the first vision. The reason why why is it that people would have trouble? Do you think why is this even a, a area of concern for people that maybe be struggling with church history? Why do they look at these accounts of the first vision with any kind of skepticism? And, and the, these are the possibility of it being mangled or stretched is because? Because 
the versions are different. There are different elements and details in one that's not in another. And, the, and, and so they're looking at the different versions and going, wait a minute, he's, he said this here and he said this here. So you, so so you change it a little bit based on who you're talking to. Are they both true? Yes. Are they both accurate? Yes. Okay. But I only tell Depending on who your audience is, okay? And that, that's certainly an element. Yeah, Tim? I mentioned to you last week. If we look at the first four books of the New Testament, yeah. we find four different accounts of the Savior's life. We, uh, and they were all directed at different audiences, like she was, she was just saying. And we also see that they recorded some events differently. Yep. Like, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of, you know, were there two, two events where you did exactly the same thing, or is there one event just seen differently? Is there also a, is there also a difference in how long after the event they were recorded? Luke's, we're pretty sure, were recorded probably in the, uh, at least 30 years after the events, where Matthew's not, was more immediate, Okay. I think people are taught to be more close-minded and to just follow what their preacher says. Yeah. And, and so sometimes they just heard it from somewhere else. And at the end of the New Testament, you know, it says you can't add anything to this. So that's the end of it. There's nothing more. Right. So this is just new and out of the box, and these people are just, everybody's scared of it. Let, 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 me give you, let me give you an example of this. This is, uh, this is part of the 1838 edition, or version. This is written by Joseph after he has fleed, fled, Kirtland, hath fled. <laughs> He, in the middle of the night, the, the families have to get out of Kirtland. The, 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 the safety society has caused people to lose a lot of money. There's a lot of anger. They believe he's a fallen prophet. He has to get out under the cover of darkness. They make their way to Missouri. He gets to far west. There's a lot of... The, the people in Missouri have gone through a lot of persecution. Uh, and and the, the, uh, his scribes and the local leaders say, we, need, we don't have a history of the church written. And they persuade him to write, start writing. And, and what he's doing... He dictates to a scribe uh, what happened in the, in the grove. 
he, he dictates it and then uh, before he can actually publish it then this is this is uh, fall of 1838 then we're gonna get uh, all of the fall of, of Far West he's gonna end up in Liberty Jail for five months then he's gonna get to Nauvoo and then they got to build Nauvoo and he's got to run to Washington and plead the case then he's got to come back then they will finally get a printing press in Nauvoo so the 1838 uh, version isn't printed until 1842 and then it's canonized in 1890 now in the middle of all of this in him dictating to a scribe here's what he's saying about his experience afterwards um, I was led to say in my heart why persecute me for telling the truth I'd actually seen a vision uh, He's talking about afterwards, I, I pursued my common vocations all the time suffering severe persecution at the hands of all classes of men, both religious and irreligious, because I continued to affirm that I had seen a vision. Uh, verse 28, I was left to all kinds of temptations uh, caused by, I was persecuted by those who ought to have been my friends and to have treated me kindly and if they supposed me to be deluded, to have endeavored in a proper affectionate manner to have reclaimed me okay the the met one of the sub messages of the 1838 version of the first vision is I had a vision I knew it and I was heavily persecuted and 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 railed upon because I told it it's a story of persecution and holding on to your vision I was like Paul in front of King Agrippa I knew I'd seen it and I was persecuted because I told the truth okay that's the message of this version okay and you get this sense and it's where we have our popular belief of Joseph walking out of the grove first of all telling the Methodist minister he's saying shucks boy that never happened anymore and stuff like that and then he's gonna go from there and tell everybody in the village and everybody's against him that's a, this is where we get this sense and it's a it's a story of persecution and holding on to your faith it seems ironic to me that the Methodist uh, minister reacted the way he did because I was reading in a, a, an old book of my dad's that it was actually a, a preacher Lane who was a yeah it was probably Reverend minister Lane who gave a lecture on which church should I join and use that scripture from James yeah. So well, yeah. Criticizing Joseph for I'll, I'll tell I'll tell you why. There was a reason, and it's not the reason you, you think that he was. Okay. But I just want you to get, this is where we have our popular belief of, of the, the first, th this initial experience. And generally, it go, the narrative is generally, Joseph had the experience, he tells his family, they support him, he goes into the village, everybody's against him, uh, and then it's, it's game on from that point. Okay? Let me tell you why that version may not exactly be accurate and why I think that is and where sometimes people get stumbled and this this is this is where sometimes there's a, a question and I think there's a very simple answer uh, with, again with the with all of these questions 
uh, as the church has again hired this this uh, this group of wonderful historians that painstakingly go through all the evidence that they have about our history and not only are they getting it everything they can find that is written they publish it they 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 put it online so you can see the actual documents as well the Joseph Smith papers is just fantastic now and the idea was is that the vast public probably wouldn't sit and read the Joseph Smith paper day in and day out. President Moon might, he's that kind of guy. <laughs> but um, for, the, for the rest of us, it, it becomes a reference. We can go there, if we have a question about a certain event, you can actually look at the actual documents, pull it up, and researchers and historians especially can pull this together, and, and as they find new information, they can post it quickly, so we have access to it. So here's what's coming out of uh, the Joseph Smith paper uh, scholars that begins to challenge quite a bit the popular narrative that we've had about this moment. And to me, this just resonates. It begins to make sense when I understand who Joseph Smith was and how he saw it, and there's an application to us. The, um, now, so who knew that he had had this experience? Here's what uh, the Joseph Smith paper people are. Joseph Smith paper people? <laughs> the people with the Joseph Smith papers. According to Joseph Smith, he told the story of the vision immediately after it happened in the spring of 1820. As a result, he said, he received immediate criticism in the community. However, there is little, if any, evidence, however, that in that by the early 1830s, Joseph Smith was telling the story in public. At least, if he's telling it, no one seemed to consider it important enough to record it at the time. And no one was criticizing him for it. Not even his own history did Joseph Smith mention being criticized in this period for telling the story of the first vision. We cannot find any contemporary records that between 1820 and 1830 that anybody was recording the fact that there was a boy in town that had a vision. Now, and this comes actually from two sources. Let me give you the first one. The interest, rather, was in the Book of Mormon. We can find all kinds of, th after the Book of Mormon comes forward, starting from 18, even from 1823 when he has the first experience with uh, Moroni, and he starts telling about it, now the persecution begins to come. And he is persecuted heavily for angels and gold plates and magic glasses and, and all of this kind of stuff. It's hitting him hard. And, and, and so what they find is... The first group is no mention in any anti-publications actually until the 1840s. Now, let me give you an example of that. That little ditty has caused us more grief and pain in the church than you have any idea. Uh, the story behind this is that there was a man in the 1830s uh, in Kirtland by the name of Philastus Hurlbert. Philastus had been thrown out of the Methodist Church for adultery. That's well documented. He joins the church and has the same problem. Joseph will excommunicate him in Kirtland in 1830, early 1830s. 
1832. Uh, Flastus Hurlbert, in order to kind of protect himself, will go to E.D. Howe, who's a publisher, and he'll say, I have all this scurrilous information on Joseph Smith. What E.D. Howe will do is that he will travel from Kirtland up into Palmyra, and he starts interviewing people in the early 1830s that had known Joseph Smith growing up. He'll talk to everybody that he can, and he has, uh, and he and he uh, sta- he has all of these comments from all of these people who knew the, who knew Joseph when he was young. And it, and this is where it's kind of fun in the sense that it will always be things like, Joseph was always drunk, standing on the corner, doing nothing. He was he wasn't real smart. He wasn't real bright. And right and right after that, they'll talk to another guy that says. He was like this evil genius and he would go around at night stirring up the countryside and he just and he had all this stuff going on, you know, and you just get all of this wide uh, varying accounts of Joseph was either really lazy and stupid or he was extremely evil and cunning. But as uh, Hugh Nibley talked about when he was reviewing all this, he says, you you don't get to have it both ways. He's either an idiot or a genius. He doesn't get to be both. Um, but uh, but uh, Edie Howe will come home and he will and he will write a book called Mormonism Unveiled. When I look at anti-Mormon literature, even today, and the Baptists churches that have this stuff and they're looking at it and I will follow the citations to the bottom it always runs back to E.D. Howe and Mormonism Unveiled from 1834 onward this has been the go-to thing even though it has been debunked so many times uh, this is still their go-to uh, and so for instance I, I know you can't read this but so let me let me read just the cover page this is Mormonism Unveiled and it's a faithful account of that singular imposition and delusion from its rise to the present time with sketches of the characters of its propagators and a full detail of the manner in which the famous gold Bible was brought to the world uh, to which are added um, there we go oh that works doesn't it (laughs) Hey. <laughs> to the probability that the historical part of the said Bible was written by one Solomon Spalding more than 20 years ago and by him uh, intended to have been published as a romance <laughs> by E.D. Howe. Wonderful. I'm surprised even now the old idea that that, uh, Solomon Spaulding is somehow behind the Book of Mormon. Solomon Spaulding about 20 years earlier had written uh, a book about that purported to be kind of the um, Israelites coming to the New World. And and he writes it, but at the time the the Solomon Spaulding manuscript was... uh, was called Manuscript Lost, meaning we can't find it. 
But the, what the old settlers were telling was, yeah, we think Joseph Smith got it from Solomon Spalding. Who was Solomon Spalding? Oh, he wrote a book about the Israelites. And by the way, they were led by Nephi and Lehi, and they come to the New World. Ah, oh. so Edie Howe is going, we, it could have been Solomon Spalding. What's the name of the book? Well, we'll just call it Manuscript Lost, because we can't find it. Well, that's nice. Uh, the problem is, about 20 years after that, we find Solomon's manuscript, and it's a little bit like uh, trying to say the Book of Mormon came from Dr. Seuss. <laughs> if you want to, you can go online now and read Solomon Spaulding's manuscript, and you're going to look through and go, really? <laughs> this is it. So then the belief was, well, then this must not be the manuscript. There has to be another manuscript by Solomon Spaulding that really is where Joseph Smith must have got it because they're coming from the idea, what we believe for sure, Joseph Smith couldn't come up with this. He was an idiot. Or he was an evil genius up all night long raising the countryside. Okay? So anyway, this is E.D. Howe. Now, why is this important to write now? Part of where E.D. Howe, bless his heart, was actually out doing his research and he's out interviewing farmers in Manchester and Palmyra that knew the Smiths growing up. In this entire book, uh, first-hand people that knew the Smiths, there is not one account of the first vision. There are, every one of them talks about Gold Bible, and angels and magic spectacles and hills and, and angels. But nothing about the first vision. And this is true of just about every anti-book that happened at the time. If you really want to attack Joseph Smith, uh, uh, what's his name, Campbell, of uh, the Campbellites, who was angry that they stole Sidney Rigdon, he writes a scathing book on Joseph Smith. No mention of the first vision. Now, so, you, so what, what does all of this mean? Here's, here's, what I've, here's what I've come to believe about, as I've studied, my narrative actually kind of changed this week. The more that I studied and the more that I looked at this experience, Joseph was not prone to exaggerating, and he wasn't prone to making stuff up. I believe that Joseph intended his experience in the grove to be his own personal uh, conversion experience. I don't believe necessarily that he ever planned to publish it or talk hardly anything about it. I think he did talk to a Reverend Lane shortly after and I'll tell you why in just a second. But other than that I really believe that he never intended this really to be published. This was his own experience for some very personal reasons that we'll talk about in a second. Okay, That's, that's kind of where I'm going at the moment. Yeah. That's exactly how I felt. I was reading the, um, the the four versions of the first vision has been translated into Chinese. Yeah. So I was reading through Chinese version and the English version this morning. And uh, as you know, I only joined the church for um, to this year will be 18 years, years. So for me, I was actually a little concerned when I learned that the church started to publishing this. I was talking to my husband and saying, I was so afraid that it's going to shake my face. Yeah. I paid my life <laughs> for this. Yeah, I changed my life for this. I yeah. For uh, yes. But I can tell you that, is that what you're just saying was the, exactly the same 
of first feeling I have when I finish through, I say, this is not intent to publish to Joseph Smith was not seeking the publication publication correctness. This is his personal journal. Yes. Because I have my own experience if I re because I can relate my, my little humble experience for myself. If I reca uh, recap my my uh, testimony three years ago and I recap it again this year, it's not gonna be the same. No, it's not gonna be the same. When I read it, I can tell this is a personal journey. There you go. So I, I don't, when I read through that and I feel like I don't need any evidence. This, this is just how I feel, it's a personal it is a personal account and in fact what we're going to talk about in just a second the, and the first time that he actually commits it to writing it down is in his own journal and it's 12 years after the fact. It doesn't happen until 1832, 12 years later. Now if you're going to have, let me, just, let me just throw the factors out here. If you're going to have a personal experience to try and, and, and know how, what you need to do to take care of your sins and you're going to have a spiritual experience as a result of that and it's going to be a theophany unlike anything that you were expecting and that kind of emotional traumatic experience is going to happen to you and then you don't write it down for 12 years later I believe that Joseph did a very 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 human thing I think that sometimes the events that he's talking about are going to kind of get a little bit mixed in terms of the chronology of when they, they happen. They all happen, they just hadn't, didn't necessarily happen in, in the way that he initially thought that they did. Okay, And so when we look at the 1838 ed edition where he's saying I told people and I received all kinds of, of uh, persecution, let me go back and tell you again. He wrote it just after being kicked out of Kirtland. He's in Missouri where they're in the midst of persecution. He's dictating it to a scribe. The scribe is going to write it down in language that is really clearly not Joseph Smith's in the, the amount of flowery language. And it's going to be, and this, this sense is going out that now we're going to use this as a missionary track going out and it's going to be about keeping your faith in the midst of persecution. Can you hear the themes? I think that he was heavily persecuted after the Book of Mormon was announced. I, we don't have any evidence that he was heavily persecuted after, the first, after his experience with the first vision because I don't think he told anybody. Hugh Nibley says, I don't think he ever intended to tell anybody about it. He kept, this was a very private, personal, spiritual experience of the conversion of a young boy to know what he needed to do and where he needed to go immediately to find mercy. And and facts I think are going to bear this out. Yeah. Didn't he tell a minister? Yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that because he is going to do that, and that's going to probably be one of his little promptings. Even if I'm going to share it, this very intimate spiritual moment with somebody, and I'm going to get pushback. By the way, I do believe he got pushed back from his family. I think it took a while for his family to sign on. And, and again, I'll tell you that in a sec. Yeah. And those two things, he's going to be trying to present he's going to, because he's probably talked to a lot of it. This is not the first time he's asked questions. Yes. He's asked for a while now, and then he finally stopped. So he's probably had discussions with his family for a while, and they have a relationship. He's going to get knocked down. And that right there, if, if he, if he, even if he was going to share it with anybody, he's not sure what the reaction would be. Okay? Now, 
Let me, uh, let me mention one last thing here. There's also no mention in church publication until Joseph's written account in 1838 and published in Nauvoo 1842. We don't have any public sermons where he talks about it. We get to the Kirtland Temple in 1836 and they're doing the lectures on faith and they're going to say, here's the nature of God. They're separate beings. And they have a physical body. And he never uses the first, his own. There's a person in the room who saw them. <laughs> and he doesn't use that. He doesn't use the first vision experience, even in our own publications. It was a very personal, private experience, I think. Is my, is my own Very sacred to him. And, and the message to that ought to be about our own sacred experiences and how quick are we to relate them and under what circumstances, even at fast and testimony meeting. Okay? I imagine he may have had an experience similar to Nephi and Lehi when the Savior came and reminded him of things they forgot to put in their history. Look how important the first vision yes. is in conversion today. By the 1850s, and, and we'll talk about this, by the 1850s, the church is now leading with it after his death. It begins to emerge in the 1840s. Orson Pratt gets his hands on it, publishes it in 1840 in England, and this is part of their initial tracks to people. And I think they're coming back to, and saying to Joseph, we need this. People are, this resonates with people. And again, he said, yeah, but I never really meant, to. I know, but it works and people need to know about this. I think he was reluctantly uh, talked into doing That's my own opinion. Yeah. Personally, I'm glad that somebody reported the first vision because that had a profound effect yes. on yeah. joining the church. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I think so too. And I think that's what the, they were saying as well. Do you know what? Because in the 1820s, 1825, the, the beginning of the church, 1830, they weren't, he wasn't talking about it and he wasn't writing it down and it hadn't yet been recorded. So people were working off of the Book of Mormon. But there was, and there was for us in the first vision, and this is where I think this, that's why this is important that we see the narrative of this. Because this ought to go right to our hearts and say, this is us. How do you, where do you go for mercy? Where do you go for answers? And it becomes very personal. Chris? Uh, just to nail home your point, one, one of the versions, as you know, talks about him wanting to be forgiven of his sins. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and that is a very personal thing. Oh, very. And, and that's probably you know, what he was looking for. Well, in fact, let's... I'm going to do this. Mm. I want to roll this out here. Excuse me, animation. Okay, okay. All right, okay. Uh -huh. It's always good to edit on the fly, isn't it? Okay. Let's talk about what the what the. Uh, what we do know, we can, put some, we can begin to put some ideas together about what was actually in his mind, probably on March 26th or somewhere very close to that, as he's going into the grove. We talked last week about the fact that he was meeting with the uh, Juvenile Debate Society for two years. Remember we talked talk about that two-year period of time where he has a chance to think and discuss and 
talk to others about it, okay? And then we move him off out of Palmyra, we move him down onto the farm, now he has additional time to think about it, and be stirred up and worried about what he'd heard at the tent meetings. And in talking to the other guys, he's got to, it's one thing to talk about what all the different churches believe. Now comes, especially as his mother uh, is joining the Presbyterian church, he's got to know what he believes. Dad isn't quite sure. Dad's doing, Dad doesn't want to be attached to the Presbyterian church. Mom does. Sophronia does. They bought a pew. What do I believe? I don't know. And by the way, not knowing is not just about knowledge. It's about how, how am I going to be saved? What method is there by which I will be saved? Because if I miss it, I may not be saved. And I've listened to enough preachers that says, if I'm not saved, where do I go? Uh, I've got, I, this is a big risky thing, especially at that age. Kids at 14 tend to be a little bipolar, right? <laughs> A little polarized. It's the best day or the worst day. This is the best teacher, the worst teacher. You're the greatest mom, you're a total idiot. I'm going to go to heaven and live with God and sing his praises, or I'm going to burn in hell. Ooh. I mean, that, I'm, I'm on that precipice, and which direction I go de determines whether I'll fry in the eternities or whether I will live in eternal glory. So he's pretty nervous and he's pretty worried and he's had a couple of uh, years to think about it. So here's, so, but we can, we can surmise, we can put together a little idea about what was going on in his head just by kind of what we studied the last few weeks actually. I was at this time in my 15th year. My father's family was proselyted to the Presbyterian faith and four of them joined the church. My mother Lucy, Hiram, Samuel, and Sophronia. Okay? Now, let me stop for a second. When we're talking about the history of the apostasy, Presbyterians at this point were very, very Calvinistic. They're part of John Calvin, that sense. Anybody remember what the, the Calvinists believe? What do the Calvinists and the Presbyterians then believe about God? He, he's, a, he's a supreme sovereign. He is complete. And, and what about man? Completely a depraved man. We are, we are less than the dust of the earth. To use uh, King Benjamin's words, what he understood. Okay, man is depraved, he's fallen, Adam and Eve really screwed up. Uh, because of our th this sinfulness, we got to be grateful that God would give us anything. You don't want to be very joyful, because then you're taking glory away from God. He's a jealous God. Don't be too happy. you got to be stayed. And who's going to heaven if you're a Presbyterian? There is, a, um, there is an element of predestination, but even with that, if you don't, the, the grace of God is poured into the sacraments. So who's going to heaven? Those that have done the sacraments in the Presbyterian church. Who's going to hell? Everybody else. Okay? Is that what you were going to say? Predestined. God chooses. 
and it was just kind of and it was he was going to choose who he saves and who he doesn't yeah and it was just kind of capricious I don't know I'm in a good mood I might save you if not but because of that he might if you're too joyous then he might strike you out because he just didn't like how you were acting so it's like so you got to be proper you got to be perfect you got to be uh, kind of this sour uh, Christian who's going to graciously go in and worship Okay, that, that, that's kind of that mood. Okay, now, where's Joseph coming from? So his, his parents are going this way. In process of, of time, my mind became somewhat partial to the Methodist sect, and I felt some desire to be united with them. Okay, at this point, I need you to know that the Methodists uh, had had a history up to this point of kind of being what we would now call holy rollers. If you're going to be a Methodist, there was a lot, even in some of these tent meetings, of kind of rolling around on the ground. It wasn't uncommon, listen close, it was not uncommon in the Methodist church to have somebody say they had a vision. That was not uncommon at all. One of the more prominent ministers, Methodist ministers of the area, in that area, had said he went into a grove and saw God. They were used to having visions. And they were used to having kind of demonstrative visions at that time. Not so much now, but at that time, you had the staid Presbyterians, and then you had kind of the rockin' and rollin' Methodists. Now, can you guess for just a second who would be drawn to Presbyterianism if you look at the social strata of a, of a community? The wealthy. Yes, the rich, because we can pay for our pews, we're going to be there, we're going to dress nicely. Yes, we tend to be more Presbyterian. Who's going to be drawn to the Methodists? Kind of the common folks. Okay? They're, they're, you know, they're going to the tent meetings. They don't have a church yet. They're just kind of all over. Everybody's doing their things. They're having visions. They might even be speaking in tongues. I mean, they're just... It's just now... There was a movement on, on, well, I won't get to that yet. So, that, so uh, Joseph at that time was more drawn, after time spent in the debate society, to be drawn more to Methodism. It wasn't as formal. It wasn't as stuffy. It was more open. And he was drawn, and he, and he liked Methodism. In fact, we're going to find one of the versions where he told, later on, uh, we have pioneers who were saying, I was there when Joseph said that he went into the grove and prayed to know if Methodism was true. One version of it has him asking, is, is it Methodism? Okay? Now, so, that's quite a gap. Now, so what's the, what's the theological question in his head? Is it Because it's not just which one of these is true. There's two versions of God here, isn't there? What's the Presbyterian version of God? Supreme Sovereign, capricious, self-determining, he's jealous, don't be happy. The Methodists are like more like what we have with evangelicals today, accept God in your heart, Jesus is going to be there for you, he's much more personable. That, there's a big gap. And Joseph is going back and forth between, do I worship the supreme sovereign or do I, per, or do I worship the personal friend? 
Which one of those is, is the right one? And he was leaning towards kind of that personal friend version of it. Were the Baptists uh, in this period? Yeah, the, the, the Baptists were also having uh, some... Uh, uh, revivals outside of town but they weren't nearly as big as the Methodists the Methodists were having more fun <laughs> obviously in their things and the Presbyterians were a little bit worried when they started to pull congregates into, into Methodism and we're having to kind of push back and fight against that because their financial st stability and then the Baptists were kind of somewhere in between that okay so Joseph is going back and forth between these two. Yeah. So if the Methodists are used to the visions, I think it's interesting that the uh, preacher that Joseph shares it with treats it that way. Treats what that way? Treats his, his account of his vision as lightly and with contempt. Why? Okay, now, let's go ahead and say it. We think it, it good chance it was Reverend Lane, because Reverend Lane was the big preacher that the Methodists had brought in, that Joseph had, had and we know that from some of the, uh, the his uh, members of the debate society said Joseph was listening to Reverend Lane. What was Reverend Lane worried about? Why would Reverend Lane push back against somebody saying they saw visions? Because that he's competition. Where's Re the Methodists begin to have a movement to want to do what? They want to become more Presbyterian. Remember, Methodism is more the common folks. Presbyterians are the church of the righteous, of the wealthy. Money. 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 There you go. Now you got it. <laughs> there was a movement afoot to say Methodists wanted to be become more respectful. So what do we got to do with people that are claiming they have visions? Tamp it down. Quit talking about visions and quit rolling around in the aisles. <laughs> Settle it down. And that, uh, Reverend Lane is not saying to them, nobody ever has visions. He's saying, well, let's just stop talking about that because that really isn't so much true anymore. They were pushing back against what they're trying to not be quite so much that way. It's a much different belief than what we've always talked about. Reverend Lane knew, he, Reverend Lane had a, had a pastor buddy who had already been in the Grove seeing God. It wasn't that it wasn't going to happen. It's just the fact that they were trying to reduce that and become more respectable in society. D does, does that make sense? Okay. So, The Presbyterians were most decided against the Baptists and the Methodists using all their powers of reason and sophistry because the Methodists would be more about emotion and feeling and, and, and I've been filled with the Spirit and everything and the Presbyterians are going, no, it's the creeds. It's the creeds. We, we were following the Nicene Creed. We're following, you know, the Westminster Confessions. We're following the creeds. Okay? So they're going to use sophistry and reason to prove their errors. Okay? It's a little bit like when Republicans are coming from, it's about law and the, and the Democrats are it's all about love and you know and you're trying to go back you're coming from two you're talking two different things okay yeah as an outsider coming into the church it's 
interesting because our church tends to be not as extreme as the Methodist. Yeah. Out of that time. But more towards the formal. Yes. Like it appeals to. Yes. That's one of the reasons why somebody somebody put it. I think I mentioned it the other day. There's been a sense of saying sometimes in 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 ecumenical church circles, there are those that are going to kind of put God on the same level with us. They're going to be more evangelical. Jesus is my friend versus those that are more of the gospel, the creeds, and God and the Catholics and Episcopalians and Presbyterians. God is more sovereign. And the beautiful thing about Mormonism is that we're both. We're both vertical and horizontal. We're, he is our friend, and and we worship him as being as powerful and all and saving as he is. Okay. Ooh, we got thirty minutes. How do we do this? Um, when the light had departed I had no strength but, but soon recovering to some degree I went home and as I leaned upon the fireplace mother inquired what the matter was I replied never mind all is well I am well enough enough then I said to my mother I have learned for myself that Presbyterianism is not true <laughs> you th- how well do you think that went over? <laughs> you know, again, our narrative t- t- tends to be, oh, son, why not? Well, I went into the grove and I saw God. Oh, I totally believe you. Let's go that direction. Yeah. <laughs> do you know that, that uh, Lucy wasn't excommunicated from the Presbyterian Church till 1838? <laughs> so, or no, 1828. 1828, after the Book of Mormon came out, just before the church was organized, she, was, she still kept going to Presbyterianism. Because I don't think Joseph told her. Or if he did, he didn't emphasize very much. This was his private thing that he kept to himself, I think, is my own, my own belief. Okay? Isn't that a result of perhaps talking to everyone? Keep it to yourself a lot? Yes, yes. Some days after I had the vision, I happened to be in, now. Now listen closely on this. I happened to be in company with the Methodist preacher, one of the Methodist preachers, who was very active in the before mentioned religious excitement, and conversing with him on the subject of religion. Stop. We were having a conversation about religion. I took occasion to give him an account of the vision which I had had. Again, our narrative tends to be, Reverend Lane, Reverend Lane, hey, hey, I saw God. (laughs) What he did was, he's having a conversation, and in the broad conversation with Reverend Lane, he goes, can I tell you something? I went into the woods the other day and saw God. And it was wonderful, and it was marvelous. And and Reverend Lane, shh, no, we're not doing that anymore. (laughs) I was greatly surprised. I took occasion to get, uh, give him the account. I was greatly surprised at his behavior. He treated my communication not only lightly, with great contempt. It was all the devil. There's no such things as visions and revelations in these days. Stop it! All these things had ceased with the apostles and there would never be any more of it. We're trying to become more respectable. Okay? Alright. Now. So let's take a look at, uh, uh, if, if you have this in mind, 
What you're going to see now is this slow unrolling. Uh, now, I think what, what we're going to see is that with each successive uh, vision version, that uh, there are additional details coming to light as he goes back to remember them. And, and he's very careful about what he's saying and how much he wants to tell. I, I believe two things after studying all of these as, as much as I have the last few weeks. One, I believe that we will never know exactly all the stuff that happened there because he never told everything that, everything that ever happened there. I believe that the church never knew most of the stuff because most of the, the additional little details we get came from little personal conversations that he had with people, but he never preached a public sermon on it. So it, it slowly rolled out. The, the for him, the, the church, the organization of the church and the restoration really begins with Moroni and the gold plates. I don't think for years that he considered it was... The, fir the first vision was his. That was his own experience than the call of a prophet. His own theophany. Okay. 1832 account. Now... Of all of these, this is the only one we have in his own handwriting. You can go on Joseph Smith papers and see the handwritten part that he actually recorded this. He records it in 1832. Uh, all the other versions were uh, given to a scribe who then wrote it down and did some of their own little editing to it. Okay, But this is his own uh, version in his own handwritten account. Um, when I considered upon these things, my heart exclaimed, well, now listen to his struggle. And, and we ought to look at this and say, this could be our own struggle. My heart exclaimed, well, hath the wise man said that it is a fool that saith in his heart there is no God. My heart exclaimed, all these things bear testimony and bespeak of an omnipotent, omnipresent power, a being who maketh laws and decrees and bindeth all things. That's a deist. That's very much a deist. I believe in this wonderful God. I just don't understand which direction I should go to find this wonderful God. Um, bindeth all things in their bounds. He filleth eternity. Who was and is and will be from eternity to eternity. And when I considered all these things. And that which had been. His seeketh such to worship him. To worship him in spirit. Therefore I cried unto the Lord for mercy. For there was none else to whom I could go and obtain mercy. His trip into the grove was in search of mercy. mercy. That's what drove him. I'm feeling the weight of my sins. He's a 14-year-old boy scared to death. I need mercy. Let me know, Teach me where I should go to find mercy. To me, that's a very personal kind of thing. Um, and the Lord heard my cry in the wilderness. Isn't that great? He heard my cry in the wilderness, and while in the attitude of calling upon the Lord, in this case, this, again, this gives you some idea the, how our memories work. And he's writing it down in this experience. He says, in the 16th year of my age. Twelve years after the fact, he, he's almost forgetting what age this happened. A pillar of, he first of all, he says a pillar, pillar of fire. Then he crosses it out and says light. Doesn't that give you some idea? Think about 
Moses' first experience with God is where? A burning bush. Yeah. When we talk about fire, this, this, this light fire thing is so bright that the only experience they have with something this bright would be fire at, in 1820. Yeah. How did Paul describe his vision on the road to Damascus? Didn't he use a column of light? I think he did. Yeah, so, and even his use of the words uh, going into the wilderness, it's almost like he's reflecting upon Venus's experience to the backdrop, looking back on the experience, putting things in context as to other people who have had spiritual experiences. I think that's exactly right. Remember, he's just come off of translate, not only by, by 1832, because I was just looking. Uh, guess what else is happening right about this time that he's writing down this experience? He's, trans, he's translating the, the Bible. We're getting the, 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 the translation of the Bible. He's just, peer, he's just finished translating the Book of Mormon. He's now going through the Bible. Uh, Moses has now been is in the process of being revealed to him. So the Enoch experience is very much on his mind. I think. And I think he's resonating. And Lehi's experience. And, and then we have Enos in the Book of Mormon. He has these, the history of these wonderful people. Think of the Moses 1, where Moses is going to have this great theophany with God. Okay? So very, very much, I think that's influencing him. Um, he's going to say, uh, pillar of fire uh, upon, upon the brightness of the sun. We should have a time. I'm going to talk about this pillar a little bit more in just a second. Uh, the brightness of the sun at noonday comes down from above, rested upon me, and I was filled with the Spirit of God. And, now, you have to read this very carefully. Our, 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 our uh, 1838 version says that he, he looked up into the light and he sees two personages, right? Okay? Now, this is one of those differences, and listen closely how he says it. And the Lord opened the heavens upon me, and I saw the Lord. What he's saying is, and the other versions back this up, when he looks up into the fire for the first time, what does he see? One person. He sees the Father. And the Father is going to open the heavens and reveal the Son. That's what the Father does. So, I saw the Lord, the Lord open the heavens upon me, and I saw the Lord. And he spake unto me, saying, Joseph thy son. The very first thing I think that Joseph heard from this being was what? Joseph. Thy sins are forgiven thee. Go thy way, walk in the statutes, and keep my commandments. I sought for mercy, and I found it. I knew that I was okay. Uh, be, I, I am the God of Lord of glory. I was crucified for the world. Uh, none doeth good, not one. Um, so he's, he's going to begin to open up that experience. Mine anger is kindling against the inhabitants of the earth to visit them. Um, and lo, I come quickly. So we get this, this experience. So Joseph's initial experience in here, to have his sins remitted, to find mercy, and finds it. Okay? And afterwards, wouldn't it make sense that if you've had this kind of experience, what's the result of having this kind of experience? 
My soul was filled with love, and for many days I could rejoice with great joy, and the Lord was with me. Now he says, even in 1832, I could find none that would believe the heavenly vision. I think that's his family. That's my own belief. As I ponder these things in our heart. But he's filled with love. That's what would happen. Think about those times when you feel like you've been given answers to prayers. And whether you're in the temple or just kneeling alongside the bed. And you're filled with, what's the, how do you feel? Filled with love. To be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with His love. It just lifts us. And that love naturally, think about Enos. Enos has this experience and he's filled with love. And where's the very next thing after he knows that his sins are forgiven? What's his next worry? Other people. A welfare of my people, welfare of the Lamanites. It just, we naturally do that. Once we know we're okay, think about Lehi at the, at the tree of life. Once I know I've tasted this fruit, I feel his love. This is the greatest thing. Then what's the next thing he wants? Family. Family. We do that. So whenever we're filled with the Spirit, our next movement is that we reach out and we love other people. God's love kind of does Enos that. Enos did the same thing. And Enos did the same thing, yeah. Put the difference in the accounts also, well, and probably good, he didn't write it when he was younger, because he could have had that experience and not known how to verbalize it, not known, not really understand what he was experiencing, and would have really messed it up, and he would have liked oh. something. Yeah. He, so as he matured in the gospel and in his relationship with the angel and, and so forth, he was able to more eloquently and understand and yeah. Yeah, Cindy and I were talking uh, this morning about the fact that in another version he will talk about uh, the jail of paper and ink. <laughs> that he's just, he can't, he's like, he's like um, uh, Moroni going, we, ha- we feel these things, we just can't write them. And Joseph couldn't write. <laughs> That's why when I'm looking at that 1838 version in the flowery language, I'm going, no, nah, it's not him. <laughs> it's not him. Uh, in fact, all of the beautiful things that come out of the... Out of the uh, this is just recent knowledge that we've gained, just in the last couple of years. The Liberty Jail, and we have section 121, 122, and 123, and the beautiful language of Joseph writing to the church uh, from Liberty Jail that, that ends up in the Doctrine and Covenants. He wrote that in concert with the other brethren in, in, in the jail. He had help. They would write it, and then they would rewrite it, and then they would rewrite it. So he got help from McRae and others that were there with him. Okay, and we now we now know that Joseph was not this kind of flower. Now, by the time we get to 1844, and we have him some of his writing and stuff, he's very flowery. But at 1838, no. 1832, this is where Emma says he couldn't even write a well-written letter. He was lucky to write his own name. Okay. So, uh, questions on that? I just think it's interesting how the Lord deals differently with so many different situations. You know, like Moses and Enoch, he kind of sought them out. Yes. But they felt the same way. Oh, they did. Alma, I think, is as good account as anybody that was totally in anguish. And he gives us a good account of, boy, I thought I was doomed forever after. Yeah. And he probably shared a lot with his sons of Messiah. And, and then Joseph was a 
kind of like Elma, but not to that degree. Yeah, but he's still he's still a, an unlearned farm boy. And he's a lot younger. And he's a lot younger. Yeah. Yeah, Tim? Why would you say that he couldn't write? He seems pretty intelligible to me. Yeah. Except for the punctuation, I don't Yeah. <laughs> yeah, th yeah. At this point, like I say, he this is twelve years after the fact. So he's, oh. and and he's now done the Book of Mormon, and he's now doing the translation. He's learning. If he had some, something just mentioned, if he written this in eighteen twenty, oh, it'd have been awful. I'm wondering why his his account of of Satan isn't taught so much. Um, it seemed like it was when I was a little girl. I remember being a yes. And and. Our missionaries out of mission didn't even teach that. No. No, in fact, think about our last three. In fact, this will flow right into the next one. Thanks, Jimmy. Um, look at the last three uh, uh, vision version films <laughs> that the church has produced. Okay? We, did, we did, had the one three times ago where his experience with Satan is kind of a creepy, dark kind of thing. Okay, then we do the next one and we leave it right out. Then the latest one that we've done, Satan's back in again. Because we're not quite sure what to do with that pushback. Now, we don't know anything about that experience until 1835. 1835, uh, he's there in Kirtland, and he's visited by kind of a uh, kind of a nut, an itinerant uh, preacher who went by a number of names. One of them was Matthias, um, and he will he will spend about uh, three days living with Joseph and talking to him. And at the end of three days, Joseph goes, um, "You're a nut. Go away." <laughs> Because the guy is kind of, and he's got some pretty kooky ideas. But he's having a conversation with him. He has a scribe in the room in 1835. And he decides on this one-on-one -on -one to, to provide a little bit. And so he's going to say, I call, he's talking to Matthias and scribed. So we had somebody else writing in the room for him. I called upon the Lord for the first time in the place of above stated, or in other words, I made a fruitless attempt to pray. My tongue seemed to be swollen in my mouth so that I could not utter, and I heard a voice behind me like someone walking toward me. I strove to pray but could not. The noise of walking seemed so to draw near, and I sprung up to my feet and looked around, saw no person or thing that was calculated to produce the noise of walking. He can hear it coming through the brush. I kneeled against my, my mouth was open, my tongue liberated, and I called upon the Lord in mighty prayer. Um, this, Matthias had kind of a thing about the devil. And, and Joseph is saying, yeah, I remember having kind of the real thing. And, and told him this experience. A pill, now, a pillar of fire appeared above my head. It, presented, it presently rested on, upon my head and filled me with joy unspeakable. And a personage appeared in the midst of this pillar of flame, which was all, spread all about, and yet nothing consumed. He continues to be surprised that the fire is not lighting the trees on fire. Okay? Yet nothing consumed. Another personage soon appeared, like unto the first. And he said unto me, Thy sins are forgiven thee. He testified unto me that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then he adds, so here's two new elements we get. 
one that the devil is there and then the other one is and I saw many angels now he will say this in 1835 it's left out of 1838 okay which by the way now if you look, go back and do you think there's a possibility that Paul saw many angels along with the Lord Lehi did Paul leaves that out I think that's kind of angels are there to kind of testify and all that okay now let me jump ahead and see this, this is where each time it's hard to know the farther we get away from this this is now 20 years after the experience and it's third hand coming from Orson Pratt uh, Orson Pratt will be the first one actually to publish the, the event because he loved, he'd heard it from Joseph Smith, heard some elements in conversation. He gets to England, he publishes it. Um, it's not published widely until 1842, but it is in England. Orson Pratt. Here's what he's going to say, and he has a few different elements. As it drew nearer the light, it, it increased in brightness and magnitude so that by the time it reached the tops of the, have, the trees the whole wilderness for some distance around was illuminated in the most glorious and brilliant manner. Now I kind of like this, this version whether this is Orson's interpretation or what, how he heard it from Joseph Smith don't know but there's a sense that there's a part of this that really resonates with me in our own experiences and that is that he's talking about the fact that Joseph is, is in the midst of this darkness, he looks up and he sees a pillar of fire in the sky and it takes a little while to get there. It doesn't like turn on the light immediately. It's going to slowly descend. It gets to the top of the trees. The trees aren't consumed. And then it continues downward until it lands on him. And then he's enveloped by it. Now, what does that tell us, by the way, if we just take that as a little bit of a template, what does that tell us about our own individual revelation? Our own individual enlightenment? Wait for it. Wait for it! <laughs> and it will be gradual. It, it, it do, it's not like flipping a switch. It comes slowly and fills us and envelops us if we will just be patient. And we have to wait upon the Lord. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And even Moroni, we're talking about next week. It was like it slowly, it slowly started to get bright. Yes, that's right. So the Lord, so if the Lord has, so if the Lord has knowledge to give you, what are the chances that He's going to give it to you slowly and gradually, and it's like slowly taking a dimmer switch and turning up the light brighter and brighter until you get it. Lord Bednar talks about revelation coming in the two ways. Sometimes suddenly, like a light being flipped on. Other times, gradually, like the morning, the dusk, and dawn. Yeah, yeah, beautiful, beautiful phraseology. So most of the time it's that way. Yeah, and most of the time it comes. It slowly comes upon us, but, 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 but we live in a pretty immediate society. It, if our kids want an answer to something, where do they go? To Google and thumb them. Yeah, they want it right now, and they want to be able to get an answer right now, and then if it's going to take more than about five minutes to get the answer, they just, ah, well, 
Okay? <laughs> if I want to watch if I want to watch a show, I go to Netflix. Why? Because I can watch the episode. And then it ends with a cliffhanger. And then what do I do? Binge. Go to the next episode. Binge. I don't have to wait for commercials or next week or next season. And then we get and when we get to the end of those, we got to Cindy and I got to the end of one the other day. We got to the last one and we went Where's the next? Where's the next episodes? Oh, it's next season, and we're looking. All is it on Hulu? Is it where? Where to go? We want it now. Okay, this isn't. We're not supposed to have to wait. Okay. As it drew near, it increased in brightness. Okay. Then he says. He expected to have the leaves and boughs of the trees consumed as soon as the light came in contact with them, but perceiving that it did not produce that effect, he was encouraged with the hopes of being able to endure its presence. It continued descending slowly until it rested upon the earth and he was enveloped in the midst of that. Now again, this is Orson Pratt's description. How, he got this from Joseph Smith, and it's hard to know how much was embellished, but I, I kind of love the imagery. I love that it's always, and it rested upon me. It's a gentle thing. Yes, it was. It yeah. You just get this, this, in, in, this, this, uh, an, uh, this opening thing that is occurring. Now, when it first came upon him, it produced a peculiar sensation throughout his whole system. This is so Orson. And immediately his mind was caught away from the natural objects with which he was surrounded, and he was enwrapped in a heavenly vision and saw two glorious personages. That it feels right to me, but I. But again, it's still Orson in his own description. Yeah. And we know from personal revelation that we have to be changed in order to be in His presence. Yes. So physically, he would have felt different. Yeah, that he somehow he's been drawn into something. That's why it's hard to know whether it was a visitation or a, or a vision. And this, you kind of tend to. He had to have been changed somehow to be in their presence. Okay. All right. Um, l let me throw this one at you. We got about five minutes. This is the, Alex, the Alexander Nybar journal that he recorded 18, May, 24th May 1844. Um, now I'm going to hop over this. This is a good one. You got the slides. Read this one. This is a good one. Oh, this is where he says, I must join the Methodist church. He's told no. They are not my people. They've all gone astray. Uh, endeavored to rise, but felt uncommonly feeble. It's this one that I wanted to kind of finish with that I thought was kind of fascinating. Now, Historians will tell you the farther you get away from the first-hand account, the more you become a little more suspicious. This is like fourth-hand now. <laughs> Remember that there was that there was in the history of the church, uh, in the in the early in the church in Utah, like before about 1900. When was fast day? Thursdays. Thursdays. And so they would have fast day on Thursdays, and the first ones that would get up, because they're still in that first generation, the first ones that would get up to bear testimony would be those that had some remembrance of Joseph Smith. They got to go first. You're first of the line. It's not the little kiddos uh, that are going to get up there. It's anybody, first of all, that had experience with Joseph Smith, and they would get up to speak. Okay? So, um, this uh, 1893 account... Uh, Charles Walker, 
A member of the church who lived between 1855 and 1902 was at a fast and testimony meeting February 2nd in southern Utah. 2nd February attended fast meetings. Okay. Brother John Alger. Uh, in fact, this isn't Charles Walker. This is John Alger. John Alger that I got the picture of. Brother John Alger said, while speaking of the prophet Joseph Smith, that when he was, when he, John, was a small boy, he heard the prophet Joseph Smith relate his vision, seeing the Father and the Son, that God touched his eyes with his finger <coughs> and said as soon as the Lord had touched his, his eyes with his finger that he immediately saw the Savior. After the meeting, a few of us questioned him about the matter, and he told us at the bottom of the meeting how steps... So you just see this group of boys going, wait, 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 tell us more about this. <laughs> uh, bottom of steps, he was in the house of uh, Father Smith in Kirtland when Joseph made this declaration that while Joseph was speaking of it, put his finger to his right eye, uh, suiting the action with the words that's to so illustrate, and at the same time impressed the encouragement the occurrence on the minds of those that he was speaking. So he like, reaches out and touches the boy's eyes and says, this is how Joseph said to me that the father touched my eyes and it opened the eyes of my vision and I could see the Lord. Now, third hand, fourth hand, 50 years after the fact, you go, okay, you have to take that for what it is. But there's some resonance there. You look at it and go, I could see the Lord doing that. I really could, because you look at the way that the Savior would touch people physically in contact so much during his earthly ministry, it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility that there would be something, some kind of physical touch and physical contact in this vision. Okay? Alright, comments on any of this? I'm skipping around. Yeah, Tim? When you, when you said that, you made me think a vision... It's something that you see. Yeah. It's not something you Right. And so this was more than a vision. He was pulled into this thing where he's actually in their presence. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. You know, as, as we take away stuff, how we can apply it in our own lives, this is definitely a personal thing. We all can feel the spirit of that because even though a lot of us as non-members, the first vision actually was a yeah. variable that did change sure. us. Sure. But I do personally believe it was personal, so personal. It wasn't like Doctrine and Covenants published to everyone on the planet. This was between the Father, the Son, and Joseph. Yeah. We can, in similitude, in our own personal conversion, we ourselves receive sacred experiences of our own level. Yeah. And those we don't publish either. So I think that's a takeaway that should we not be surprised? No, because we don't publish sacred no. things that nor lives. nor it's should sacred. we. Nor should we. Yeah. Therefore that, that the Lord can actually um, I think the Lord can actually give us more and is willing to give us more. He's not giving me anything. I'm not going to get anything like that from him. You, you guys know me well enough. If I saw an angel last night, what would I do? Anything happen in the week? Ha! Whoa! Let me tell you about last night. I can't keep that to myself. I would be all over that. No, he's not going to show me an angel. I can't keep my mouth shut. I like uh, Joseph and Paul had a lot in common. Yes. He hath called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. Yeah. See him just 
Literally. Symbolically and literally coming out of darkness into light. That's, that's beautiful. Um, okay. So finally, let me just finish with President Hinckley. Joseph Smith learned in, learned in those, few, those minutes of the first vision, however long or brief, more about the nature of God than all of the learned divines of all time had ever learned. And I think it's not only was it personal, but it taught him who God was. I think it was possible for him to go forward with the persecution that was coming. Next week we're going to talk about uh, the coming of Moroni and all the things that begin to happen. And the persecution will now begin to mount. And Joseph's view of himself is going to suddenly expand. I don't think Joseph walked out of this experience going, well, I'm going to organize a church and translate a book. <laughs> I think he just went... There is mercy to be had and there is a God in heaven who loves me and has forgiven my sins. And I think that's, that's everything else was a little bit mind-blowing, but I think that's his sense. And I think we can have that same kind of experience on our, in our own prayers saying, there is a God in heaven who has mercy and he loves me and he'll forgive my sins. If we take that one, we are so in league with Joseph. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.